It's The World This Week, The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us, Elena Voloshin, host of uh, France 24's Eye on Russia segment. How are you? Good evening, Francis. Good, you almost good, said good, good morning. morning, yeah. <laughs> well, it's good morning <laughs> somewhere. Week, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, much for being with us. Thanks as well to Vivian Wald, Paris correspondent for Time Magazine. How are things? Pretty good. Pretty good. Are they pretty good for Paris-based sports reporter Andreas Evagora? All good for me. Thanks, Francis. All good for you. Yeah. How are things in sunny Newcastle? Judah Grunstein, editor-in-chief of World Politics Review, is here to answer that <clears> question. <throat> Well, we're all bundled up for the summer weather of northeastern England. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By the way, you could listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. Amid the first inklings of a Ukrainian counteroffensive, the dam burst. Literally, the destruction of the Soviet-era Novokokova hydroelectric power station. Well, it's a worst-case scenario that's come true. These images filmed by correspondent Gulliver Cragg Wednesday as the floodwaters were rising in the streets of Kherson. My house is gone. Only the roof is visible. Just the roof. I'm fed up. I was home. But now it's all flooded up to the second floor. Rocky, come here. Elena Volushin, uh, there had been warnings from both sides uh, for months that uh, something like this could happen. Still, what a shock. Yes, uh, well, it's, uh, some analysts said that it gave, gave us a sense on whether Vladimir Putin could uh, use or not the nuclear weapon, whereas he's... <laughs> He's always speaking about it because, uh, indeed, the Russian propaganda has been uh, uh, speaking of this scenario, of course, saying that the Ukrainian would uh, blow up the, the Kachovka Dam since the, um, they withdrew from Kherson. It was October last year. And uh, when they was in this very difficult position uh, against the Ukrainian army, they were saying that the Ukrainians were planning this attack. So it, it was on air. Uh, for months, uh, indeed, and it was a very strong line in Russian propaganda during the withdrawal from uh, Kherson. Um, and so, yeah, it's the, it's the worst, as you said, case scenario that's happening now, because uh, for Kherson and the region, it's like, you know, uh, after the not enough of the war, it's only like it's a multi-suffering city, multi-suffering region, and like it's really a huge humanitarian catastrophe that is happening now. And the shelling is also still ongoing. I mean, they, they, they are shelling the evacuation uh, site spots of, of the people. So it's really, it's really horrific what's happening. Your eye on Russia segment, you, you've you focus on what is being said uh, in Russian media. So when you're saying that uh, they ratchet up the warnings, that's kind of like a false flag that they're the ones... Could, I mean, I, this is I, circumstantial. I'm, pre I'm, pretty don't have I'm, pre no, but I'm pretty sure of it. Um, as, as an observer, uh, all the, the signs uh, points towards uh, Russia because, um, you know, it's, it's always like that when they, when they accuse the Ukrainians that the Ukrainians are going to do this or do that, usually it means that the Russians are, are operating. It was the same uh, basically with the full-scale invasion. When I was in Russia and when, when, when Russian paramilitary chiefs were speaking to me, they said the Ukrainians are going to attack 
attack, it's imminent, the, the big war is going to happen because the Ukrainians are going to attack us. So, I mean, like, reading the Russian narratives uh, throughout the propaganda, uh, which has, like, really nothing has to do with the, with the reality on the ground, uh, the way they spoke about, about, about this, I won't go into details, but the way they presented this event as an uh, auto-realizing prophecy before it happened, I mean, uh, today uh, it's, it's quite obvious that, um, and also there are testimonies that there was a blow-up from from the ground uh, of the of the dam, which was under occupied territory. Yeah, that, so, I mean, again, the, here's the problem, right? We we don't know that the dam was Russian held, um, and uh, we we don't know whether this was deliberate sabotage yet, or uh, whether uh, this is neglect. There were images of an explosion. Images of an explosion, but we don't know that something happened in the boiler room. What is certain is hydrologists pouring over charts and satellite imagery uh, point to a, a mismanaged Russian-occupied power station. Water levels uh, plummeting uh, during the winter months. You can see it on this chart. And overflowing ahead of uh, Tuesday's uh, explosion. I mean, this is over the last three years, Vivian Walt, these, uh, the, 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 the water levels. So this dam was clearly not being... Uh, properly managed. It's a hydroelectric power station we're well, talking about. Well, there was plenty of evidence that over the past um, nearly 15 months that we are of, you know, full-scale war, that there were a number of kind of um, cracks uh, or dings or, you know, there was a lot of damage to this dam. Not enough, obviously, to have caused this catastrophe earlier this week, but um, it certainly wasn't at its optimal state um, before this happened. Um, so certainly it was weakened. I mean, I think what's so, um, you know, baffling is who really had the motivation to cause this widespread, widespread uh, disaster because it uh, affects uh, Russia as, uh, almost as much as Ukraine. Um, and so I think that we... I think there are a lot of open questions, and I, I personally don't think we should jump to any rapid conclusions. Is the answer to the question, who stands the gain, the same as the answer to the question, who done it? Yes, I think it probably is. Um, I think that certainly on the Ukrainian side, they've been very strategic in the way that they've managed this whole war from the start. And so... If they did have a clear motivation to do this, despite the incredible loss of property and total upheaval to, you know, add to the 25% or so of the country that's already displaced, um, I, I would think that, yes, the signs would point to this possibly having been an attack by Ukraine. So far, it seems unlikely. All right, the good news, water levels decreasing uh, by about 20 centimeters overnight. The Dnipro not expected to recede fully for another uh, week. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how deep or shallow the waters will be then. Uh, Judah Grunstein, uh, you heard Vivian Walt there saying both sides with uh, a lot to lose over this uh, dam explosion. Yeah, I, I think that's why I'm not sure, actually, that the, the question who stands to gain is, is it, or the answer to the question who stands to gain is the same answer to the question of who did it, um, because it's hard to see how anyone gains from this, actually. Um, I think also that 
uh, just taking a step back, uh, the, the, the way in which we're talking about the, the, the question of who might have done this um, or whether it was done intentionally, um, I think illustrates uh, some of the difficulty we have sometimes in talking about uh, what's happening in the war in Ukraine and even outside of Ukraine. Um, because uh, I, I'm a, I, I can speak for myself, I have my sympathies are with uh, Ukraine. Uh, I think that their cause is just and I, and I want them to win. Um, but we saw, for instance, um, with the uh, bombing or the sabotage of the Nord Stream uh, gas pipeline, where immediately the, the, everyone jumped to the conclusion that it was Russia uh, that was responsible. And more recently, we're seeing more and more information coming out uh, that suggests that perhaps Ukraine was involved and possibly likely was involved. Um, and so it, it becomes difficult because we don't want to uh, cast Ukraine as a villain in anything or as responsible for any negative uh, impacts of, of the war because of our sympathies for, for its cause. Um, and so I think it becomes at that point very difficult when something like this happens to actually uh, maintain a, a faithfulness and a loyalty to uh, examining the issue, uh, waiting to jump, wait, not jumping to conclusions and, uh, and waiting to see where, where the facts as we, as we learn them lead. Um, and and uh, it, it's, it, you see the passions come out uh, where even suggesting that uh, that we don't know enough to jump to any conclusions right now can sometimes get you into hot water with uh, with one side or the other, um, or, or uh, particularly supporters of uh, Ukraine who who don't want to even countenance the idea that uh, uh, that something like this might not have been Russia's intention or action, and that it might have been uh, caused by something else. And uh, mm. I I don't have any reason to believe that Ukraine would do it or did do it. I, I don't see why they would. Uh, but in other cases uh, uh, that are similar, uh, we see that same difficulty. Uh, Andrei Sevagor, yeah, we had we had the French, uh, the sorry, the British uh, Foreign Secretary, um, who the the other day said uh, he didn't want to appropriate blame until he's got all the facts this time around. There is this feeling that you don't want to point the finger until you're absolutely certain. Well, I think you should, and and I agree with everything that's been said here. And Elaine, obviously, covering this very closely. What obviously our hearts go out to everyone who's affected by this. What was disturbing for me was the fact that how slow it's taken for any aid to get to these people. Now, after a year of um, this awful conflict, and you know, we've been warned that this might happen. I remember about a year ago, Croker Peters of this parish talking on this very program, saying we shouldn't be surprised about any kind of attack or eco-terrorism or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and still, it seems very hard to get any help to the victims of this, which which would be my first reaction. And one would hope that that can be improved, whether it's possible in this this awful situation, I don't know. But that would be my first reaction. And hopefully, if this kind of thing happens again, tragically, it looks like it will. Can we get aid to the victims quicker? And this, of course, uh, is also a question of timing. Uh, it's happening as uh, there is uh, a radio silence on the part of Kiev over whether or not its uh, counteroffensive has begun in earnest. Uh, but there's evidence that's growing. The French Defense Ministry this Friday putting out a map that shows uh, that Ukrainian counteroffensive activity, it seems, in three different zones uh, along the front line, um, including one that we'll focus on uh, here, uh, which is uh, south of Zaporizhia, south of Zaporizhia uh, between two towns, uh, Tokmak and Orihiv. Uh, 
little incursions, not that far across, but still uh, in an area that is on the Russian side of the Dnipro River. There's also uh, attacks and counterattacks further north around Bakhmut and around the city uh, of Donetsk. But that uh, wedge towards the south, uh, Elena Voloshin, uh, that points to a strategy on the part of Ukraine, which is to try to reach the Sea of Azov, which would isolate Crimea. Yes, this is part of a strategy for the counter-offensive. Um, this is, although Ukrainians have been trying very hard to keep the secret around their plans, I mean, this is like kind of an obvious thing that they want to recover this region and to uh, cut the road uh, to, to Crimea. And in this sense, I'm sorry, I will go back to this, but uh, I don't see any real uh, Russian uh, losses uh, in, the, in this flooding of this territory because this is not Russian territory. This is a occupied territory of Ukraine. And the real losses are humanitarian losses. And, and we know that uh, for Vladimir Putin, uh, sacrificing populations is not really uh, So scorched earth a, 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 a policy big, laying, laying to waste because but they're retreating? This, but this is um, this is uh, puts Ukrainian army in difficulty for its counter-offensive on towards the south. So in that sense, I would say that this is rather uh, a problem for Ukraine, rather for Russia, uh, the, the flooding of this region. It reduces the amount of space for the front, but uh, there's also some wondering aloud if when those waters recede, since there'll no longer be a reservoir upstream, if uh, the, uh, the level of the Dnipro will be shallower and therefore easier to cross for the Ukrainians. Uh, well, I don't, I'm not a military expert here, but I think that a flooded area, uh, totally overflooded, is not an area where you can really uh, go through and break through and have a big breakthrough military of your troops and your and your tanks and, and, and the counter-offensive. Basically, on the water, I, I barely see uh, how such a thing could happen. So mm. I think this is really, if, if there is any strategy in it, apart from saying that, well, we can't occupy this territory, because I remind also that Vladimir Putin declared Kherson as a Russian city, and Russian propagandists keep on um, saying on Russian state TV that Kherson uh, is uh, temporarily occupied by Ukraine, and this is a Russian city, but uh, flo floating a, a territory that you can't, uh, in fact, occupy by your army, this is also part of uh, some kind of a revenge. I'm not like as assessing that it is Russia. I'm just like saying that I have this reading and this is my own analysis. I'm not saying this is what happened, but to, for me, all signs uh, show towards uh, towards uh, Russia. And I see uh, this as, a, as, as part of a strategy to try to stop and uh, refrain the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Vivian Wall? Well, I mean, I kind of, uh, will sort of yield to Elena on her, you know, much greater knowledge on this. However, it does seem like um, if, in fact, um, the Dnipro is much shallower as a result of this attack, once again, we have to kind of revisit what might have been the motivation for a deliberate explosion um, of the dam um, if it was to lower the level um, of the Dnipro so that you can now wage a, a full counteroffensive um, that would somewhat point to Ukraine having... All right, so se several possibilities, and it'll be another week before 
uh, we see just how far it, it, it recedes. Uh, in the meantime, uh, in those areas that we showed you on that map of fighting uh, Judah Grunstein, uh, there are Russian military bloggers who've uh, filmed uh, uh, German-made uh, leopard tanks in action. Uh, your your thoughts on uh, how that counter how what you can piece together again because there is that radio silence uh, about this uh, brewing counteroffensive. Well, I, I don't want to I, I don't want to present myself as an expert in the Ukrainian military and and their strategy and their counteroffensive because I haven't uh, paid close enough attention to. Uh, all of the details on the ground, and, and it's very difficult to know for sure because um, there is quite a bit of secrecy around it. Um, I think uh, more broadly, uh, what, what, we, what we can know is that uh, what we are likely to see uh, in the next days, weeks, and months um, is the degree and the extent to which all of the past six months, nine months of debates and, and arguments um, since September, since October, uh, in the West about how much equipment to give, uh, how much support, military support to give Ukraine, which weapons platforms, et cetera. Uh, the degree to which what has been delivered uh, makes a difference on, on, on the battlefield. Um, I, I think that there is a lot of uh, expectation management that should be done. I, I don't it's possible that there will be some sort of uh, stunning breakthrough and a catastrophic breakdown in, in the Russian lines. Um, that sort of thing is usually unlikely or is relatively uh, unlikely. Um, Russia has shown, despite all of its errors and all of its tactical and strategic errors, uh, the ability to, to sort of plug in the gaps, uh, fill in the gaps, hold ground um, brutally, but effectively. Um, and so I think that uh, really what we need to caution against, um, certainly there's going to be a lot of people reading the maps every day and, and talking about which two kilometers or five kilometers or 15 kilometers have changed hands in the past 24 hours or 48 hours. And I don't mean to belittle, belittle that because that's important and that uh, cumulatively will determine the outcome. Uh, but the outcome on the battlefield here is the product of months of preparation that we've seen, uh, and will be the product of months of fighting. Right, and the, and and the, ab the ability to keep will, supplying uh, some... If I can just finish, that outcome will not it likely be de de definitive at the end of this counteroffensive. Uh, all signs point to a very long, drawn-out war that will go back and forth several times uh, and may not have a de de definitive battle battle battlefield outcome. Uh, so I think that there, there needs to be some expectations management in terms of what can and will be accomplished with this particular offensive. Yeah, and there's, there's also uh, uh, increasing attention to uh, events taking place across the Russian border. Uh, there was a drone that hit uh, a residential building overnight in the Russian city of uh, Voronezh. Uh, injuring three. There have also been, uh, uh, again, uh, things falling from the sky uh, into the southwest. Uh, Elena Volochin, uh, you, for your Iron Russia segment, spoke to a resident of uh, Shebekino, that's in Belgorod province, where we've seen those uh, Ukrainian-backed militias who've been uh, seizing villages and even capturing Russian soldiers. 
Yes, I spoke to a resident of uh, Shebekino. It's a middle-aged woman, woman who had to leave Shebekino on the 1st of June when the shelling was uh, particularly heavy with uh, all her family. She didn't want to tell me where she went, but it was a neighborhood city according to her. Um, uh, it was quite uh, an interesting um, even, in, even for me because I would expect that maybe uh, with, the with the war exporting to Russia, um, Russians and, and them living close to the border, maybe they would have like a, a sense of, of things that, that happened which would not be like that um, uh, radical as in, uh, in Moscow, for example, where, they, when they, where they're far away and they say, yes, Americans are attacking, etc. But she was like exactly in this uh, parallel reality speech where she says, uh, I, I told her, who's, who's, who's bombing you? And she said, uh, sorry, she said, niggers. And I said, and the mercenary army. That was her answer. And I said, sorry, I did not get it. Who? Yes, niggers. You know, the Americans. That was her answer. I mean, like, this sounds completely surrealistic and you have to hear it, but uh, it, it, it's what she thinks. And then she gave a, a mess of old, you know, propagandistic speeches, uh, which were to say the, 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 the black Americans are attacking Russia uh, through the Ukrainian territory and then saying the opposite, saying the Ukrainians want to invade Russia. And so at the end, uh, I was trying to, to, to ask her, uh, but do you have a sense that maybe what's happening to you is because your country invaded Ukraine and not Ukraine is wanting to invade your country. And she says, well, you know, we don't really know. We are far away from politics. We just want peace. We don't want people to die. And, you know, like when you push them, uh, when you scratch this... Uh, surface of, of propagandistic dogma that, 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 that is over the brain of Russians, then uh, the, the, the logic, uh, they don't see the logic anymore. So they speak uh, using slogans. They think it's their own opinion, but it's only what they repropriate mm. themselves from the, from the narrative that are spread on, on Russian state TV. But it's always like quite kind of shocking uh, to hear it, even for me, who is quite used to this, because I've been covering... Uh, Russia for and a, as a former Moscow years. correspondent. Yes, but um, yeah. And yeah, you think the slow red clay of uh, the French Open tennis tournament uh, may seem a long way from uh, the, the front in Ukraine, but the reminders are there with Ukrainian players like uh, Alina Svitolina refusing to shake hands with Russian and Belarusian rivals. Svitolina lost in the quarterfinals this week of that Grand Slam tournament to Irina Zabalenka of Belarus who, after passing on post-match press conferences the two previous rounds, went public with her feelings. I don't, don't support war, meaning I don't support Lukashenko right now. And I said it many times already, I'm not supporting war. I don't want my country to be involved in any conflict. Quite a gutsy statement, Andrea Sevagora. She was uh, gutsy going into that press conference. Uh, very gutsy in it. One of the first things she said was, I'm going to answer any questions. She tried to in her own way. Uh, I won't tell you what she said as she was coming out, because I was lucky enough to interview uh, Irina as she was coming out. But uh, she was quite shell-shocked and, I think, fair to say, worried about um, her entourage, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, this is all quite trivial compared to what we've, what we've been seeing. But um, we are putting sports people in a very difficult position where we are pushing them to... Uh, be very clear about what they think about Lukashenko, what they think about the war, what they think about current events. These are young people who spend their day hitting a tennis ball. And I do know 
one uh, Russian player who believes or has, he believes, he's had threats to his family from both the Russian side and the Ukrainian flag. So the Ukrainian side, both sides. Uh, and he's, he's one of the top Russian players, one of the top players in the world. So they are in a very, very difficult position. And remember, in a year's time, we've got the Olympics coming to this city and that will exaggerate things. Uh, it, it's something that's very hard for sports um, organisers and authorities to deal with in a way it's a game they can only lose uh, and Svitolina herself when she re refused to um, to shake hands with her Russian opponent after one match incidentally that was a request from the Ukrainian government she was getting booed from the French crowd which I found absolutely staggering so it really is a tough time for these players who don't actually spend that much time in Ukraine or, or Russia or, or Belarus as is the case for Irina Sabalenka did you know what? Yeah, I was actually at that match in the stands and um, there was some very loud booing. And of course, uh, you know, one of the final, uh, the finals of the women's um, tournament is tomorrow and one of the finalists is Russian. So, you know, once again, we have this extraordinary thing. We're in Paris. Um, the government and the president are completely... Um, behind Ukraine, and so is the crowd, and um, they they are very hostile to these players. I hear what Andrea says. One has to kind of like wonder whether it was the right decision to allow them to compete. Um, yes, of course, it's not fair um, not to have them compete, but as Andrea says, it puts them in an impossible position, and it will again at the Olympics in a year's time. And Irina Sabalenka, distancing herself from uh, uh, President Lukashenko. She was really, I mean, I saw, I saw her on the court, I was there. Um, she was utterly sh shaken up at the end of that match, felt completely just battered by what had happened. Um, and then subsequently went on to lose the next match. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, which might have, it might have played a part in her defeat. I, th I think it is. she lost the last five games of that match. She's the best player in the world at the moment and uh, very shaken coming off. Um, it's only going to go on and on because this war is affecting all parts of, of sport. And let's see what goes on. Just to reply to that, remember Wimbledon did actually ban Russian players yeah. for one year. But now they're back it, this year. Exactly, because they, it, they were really fighting a losing battle because all the rest of the tennis world does accept Russia and Belarus players. We should be clear, but no flags and no mention of the word Russia or Belarus at the stadium. Who knows what happens to uh, U.S. support for Ukraine if a Republican wins the White House next year? And who knows how the latest charges against the frontrunner uh, will play among voters in that race. Last summer's raid on Donald Trump's Florida result netting results. <clears throat> He's to appear next Tuesday in a Miami courtroom where he'll become the first U.S. president to face federal charges, seven of them over leaked classified documents. They can't stop. Because it's election interference at the highest level. There's never been anything like what's happened. I'm an innocent man. I'm an innocent person. So, so he says, uh, uh, Judah Grunstein, um, the, uh, uh, we don't know exactly the specifics of these charges, how grave they are, because uh, the indictment has not yet been unsealed. One certainty, though, it's been a week where uh, some big names have thrown their hat into the ring on the Republican side. 
But uh, at the end of the day, we're still just talking about Donald Trump. Yeah, we're talking about Donald Trump. Um, and I think it's pretty likely that um, barring some sort of really unexpected uh, development that he will win the Republican nomination. Um, I think for me, with regard to, to this particular case, it's, 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 it's sort of one of those, it, it's, it's a, a typical Trump scandal in some ways because he's committed a, what seems, what is a pretty serious crime. Um, and when you look at why, um, it, it's really hard to figure out why. Uh, now, there might be some developments or revelations that, uh, that make it a lot more grave in terms of, uh, in terms of his motivations or his intentions um, or the, the consequences. But for now, uh, the only conclusion that, that you can really draw is that, once again, he just comes out looking like a total moron. Um, and, and yet, um, the, the, the effect and the impact on, in terms of U.S. politics is really, again, extremely serious. Um, you have, uh, had, this, had this happened in 2021, for instance, uh, you might have had time for, this, for the legal proceedings to play out before the, the election. Uh, right now, there's absolutely no way uh, that this case will be decided before the election. If the initial case is, it will be under appeal. And so, uh, so you have the entire 2024 uh, presidential election carried out under the cloud of uh, one of the candidates in in the midst of uh, uh, legal proceedings like this, and and there are a couple others that that are hanging over him as well. Um, it, it it then imagine he wins the election. Nevertheless, it puts the country in the situation where you have uh, the president who oversees the the Department of Justice in a, a, a criminal case uh, prosecuted by the Pro uh, Department of Justice. So again, an impossible situation for the rule of law in a democracy. Um, and, and I guess my, 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 my fundamental or my, my, my overall take or, or, or conclusion is just this, how casually Trump treats what is not his, but what belongs to the American people and American democracy. This casual disregard and contempt. In this case, the, the classified documents that you that you the, mentioned. The documents, but also the 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 rules and norms of American of American mm. democracy and the rule of law. Mm. That doesn't belong to him, and he's trampled on it, and it puts the entire country in this situation, an impossible situation, all to deal with the 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 the, the ego of one man. Well, um, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a situation that just causes me to feel quite a bit of, of resentment. Vivian Walt. I mean, what's so ironic about this is that Trump in the 2016 election created this absolute fervor around Hillary Clinton's so-called, you know, private emails and how she was like not really transparent and the, you know, calls of lock her up, lock her up which had a tremendous effect, actually, in just, um, you know, totally undermining her campaign. And the other thing that's so striking to me is, um, you know, not a single Republican leader has come out. Well, I beg your pardon. Uh, Mitt Romney, who's not running for anything, is, uh, did come out and say, you know, this is really bad and... Uh, he clearly, you know, mishandled classified information. There's so many cases now that do you wonder that if, if it's just become banal for, for, for... Well, I think that the Republicans feel, 
Well, they they have they played this kind of uh, very delicate dance where they've come out and they've they've condemned the Justice Department while not condemning Donald Trump. So um, the whole line now is that you know this is a weaponized Justice Department, weaponized government. And what's amazing to me is that even if he's convicted, it doesn't disqualify him from being president. Um, you can be a criminal, and the, all you have to do to be, you know, to have, to have the qualities to be a president of the United States is you have to be born in the U.S. and be over 35 years old. You can be as criminal as you like, and in fact, it seems to help his campaign among his base. It was Donald Trump who partnered with Saudi financiers to form the breakaway Live Golf Circuit. Lawsuits and finger-pointing then ensued. Now, it's been uh, quite a week. The Live Tour has struck a shock merger deal with the Professional Golfers Association. It marks the Saudis' grand entrance into the U.S. professional sports market. Outspoken critics like former world number one Rory McIlroy say they're upset, say they still hate Live but we'll have to learn to get over it. At least the PGA Tour now controls how that money is spent. You know, so I'd, you know, if you're thinking about, some, you know, one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world, would you rather have them as a partner or, the, or an enemy? Um, at the end of the day, money talks, and you'd rather have them as a partner. Money talks, Andreas Evagora. <laughs> it certainly does. This was an amazing, amazing climb down. Uh, after everything that's gone on over the last year, there's been this war between the establishment um, and Liv, which has really got very dirty with the establishment talking about 9-11 and bringing Saudi Arabia into it. Look, let's start at the beginning. Before we came onto this show, I had a quick look at Saudi investment over the period of six weeks, which is how long it takes a World Cup to, to, to play, as you well know. In the last six weeks, Saudi has put 100 uh, million euros into the French cinema industry. It signed up uh, a big joint venture with uh, Le Pompidou to put money into the arts. So we really shouldn't be clutching our pearls when they put money into sports. I mean, for some reason, the media puts sport on, a, on some sort of higher moral plane than the arts and cinema. It certainly shouldn't be. So look, this is part of life. And uh, the Saudis are involved in boxing, in Formula One, in football or soccer, you, you name it. But this is a huge problem for sport because the way they are investing money uh, can really damage the integrity of the sport. How? What, in many ways. For instance, if they bought Newcastle United Football Club, that will result in a huge inflation of players because they will throw money. So a player that's worth 40 million will then be worth 80 million or 100 million. That means no one else can compete. So the only clubs that can compete, therefore the only clubs that potentially will survive, will be those owned by uh, the Middle East. And we're seeing that already. Qatar is probably going to buy Manchester United. They bought PSG down the road. Uh, the best team in the world are owned by the United Arab Emirates. The list goes on and on. So we're getting there. But we're in a very dangerous position. We've seen just this week, Karim Benzema, who is a, a fantastic French forward, 200 million bucks a year contract uh, with a club in Saudi. And also to answer your question, there are four big clubs in Saudi Arabia. They're all owned by the government. How is that competition? How is that sport when four clubs are basically owned by the same man? Uh, Judah Grunstein, uh, you're in Newcastle, uh, where just a couple of seasons ago, the local club was uh, threatened with relegation. Next year, they're going to the Champions League. Uh, does anybody dislike the Saudis where you are? 
It's funny because right after that deal was announced, I was talking to a, a local guy here, uh, you know, and I was I was talking about the experience that I saw in, in Paris because I was there uh, when uh, PSG was bought by the Qataris. And in addition to the integrity of, of the sport, it also changes the city's relationship to the team, right? Uh, PSG was always a very sort of uh, working class, proletarian team. Uh, the stadium experience was was pretty earthy, let's say, or, or, or rootsy. Um, and after it was bought and the money was pumped into it, uh, it became a, a very luxury product, right? With uh, luxury boxes and uh, season ticket holders and the fan base changed quite a bit and the relationship to the players changed quite a bit as well. Um, and so I kind of ran through this and explained it or just uh, recounted my experience. And I said, yeah, it might change the, the relationship of uh, Newcastle to the lads, as they call them here. It's, it's you know, it's it's a local team. It's really in the in the culture and fabric of the city. And he just looked at me, he said, yeah, mate, but we'll win the Premier League. <laughs> and I was like, all right, that's that's about it. If 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 all they want, it, 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 when you have a culture in sport where winning is everything, um, and at any cost and at any price, and no matter what the team, uh, what the relationship to the team is anymore, th that's what you're going to get. Uh, but he he was overjoyed. The the fans here are overjoyed. Um, and and yeah, winning uh, winning. Uh, soothes a lot of injuries, let's put it that way. Yeah, the, we, we've seen this movie before, Lena Velocin, when uh, uh, Roman Abramovich uh, bought uh, Chelsea, they were calling it Chelsea. The fans in London were delighted. They won, they won titles, they won Champions Leagues. Yeah, well, um, Roman Abramovich, I, I don't know how far he's uh, interfering into the... Well, he's had he's to sell trying, he's, trying, he's trying to bring politics into, into the sport thing, uh, although he was uh, one of the negotiators with you with a, within the group in, in Ukraine and no one understood what he does there. Uh, but I think this all brings us to the um, conversation we had uh, before about the players, whether uh, would uh, sport be outside politics? I mean... Uh, it's it, it it of course it has always a, a repercussion and and uh, consequences on people down on players on inhabitants of those areas uh, but in the, at the end of the day right it's all about like it's it's all big politics so you can't like really pretend that that politics are that sports are outside politics let's also remember the the Sochi Olympic Games in Russia right and I saw those uh, those athletes that, who were banned because of the doping scandal then from the from the from other competitions saying but it's not our fault but I mean yes but it's how it is right well, Francois it goes even further than that because uh, at the moment going back to Newcastle Newcastle fans are turning up to the stadium wearing the Guthrie right the, the Saudi headscarf mm. it's like the cool thing to do if you listen to a, a radio phone in uh, as I do a UK radio phone in on, on sports you'll have Newcastle fans calling up defending the Saudi regime, saying it's terrible how the king's being portrayed in yeah. the Western media. It's also so the money invested really does work, and it's not that It is a propaganda operation, yes. above all. Yeah, and as it, you... Francois, if I could say one thing about the, uh, the golf league. Yeah. Uh, given the fact that Donald Trump is an investor and his past record in business, and especially sporting businesses, uh, there's no guarantee that that league is going to survive or succeed. <laughs> so I would, I'd wait a little while before we draw any conclusions there. But I, I, sorry, I just want to say something. Um, you know, what's so different about what the Saudis are doing compared to what, for example, the Qataris are doing is they're actually trying to grow their own league. Or shall we say they're trying to 
buy their own league. Um, they're the only Gulf country that actually has the population to pack huge stadiums. And they don't care what it's going to cost them. Um, for their own population, this is a country where two-thirds of the country is under 35, and they're completely football crazy. So, And they're also sports crazy. And bidding for the World Cup. Yeah. There's nothing that this government could offer them more than just mass sports. I was at the first Formula One in Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago, and the excitement among young people there um, and of course, you know, every day ended with a giant blowout rock concert by Justin Bieber was there with fireworks. And, you know, this is just mm. transformative for the actual country. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I, and I came across a lot of Saudi fans in Qatar during the World Cup. And, and one very important difference in, in modern football is that outside of Europe, young people, they don't support a club, they support a player. I would be on the Qatar Metro and people would say, oh, who do you support? I support Messi. I support Ronaldo. It's not about the country. It's not about the club. So bringing players to Saudi, as Vivian says, is very, very important. You know, when PSG signed Messi, within 24 hours, PSG's Instagram account had 4 million new followers. 4 million, 24 hours for one social media account. And that's, their figures even Trump couldn't match. Lionel Messi, who opted not to go this week, uh, to Saudi Arabia, but instead to the United States, to Miami. And uh, after the sports, time for the weather, which Elena Voloshin will say is also political. Uh, Paris eagerly awaits uh, forecasted thunderstorms this Friday. The French capital's, it would be the French capital's first precipitation in 25 days. It's the longest dry spell we've uh, felt here for this time of year since the 1940s. And speaking of unprecedented, smog. Worse than in India and Pakistan, choking New York's Times Square, the consequence of uh, unseen early season forest fires that have sent smoke south from Canada. Stay indoors. If you can't stay indoors, go out and you have to be outside, wear a high quality mask and avoid outdoor gatherings, avoid outdoor events. What's your reaction, Judah Grunstein, when you see uh, your uh, hometown shrouded in smog? Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of odd to be nostalgic for the good old days of the '70s when it was just uh, lead gasoline emissions and uh, and uh, you know the the Gowanus Canal uh, smelling about miles away. Um, but yeah, it, it, all, all joking aside, it, it's it's. It's uh, stunning and shocking, and I think in in some ways uh, the the difference, and we're seeing it right here with the with this shot, right? The difference between this impact of uh, global warming and climate change and other impacts is that you can actually see this. Um, so it makes it very visible what's happening to the planet in a way that you know hot weather is 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 hard to deal with, and it can be deadly, um, and we we feel the discomfort. But you don't see it. It's hard to portray. And this you see right away. Um, and, and you also see very clearly as well in a way that you don't otherwise the way in which uh, events somewhere very distant have a, a very real impact uh, far away. Um, and so you have a, a climate change impact in Canada uh, having an impact on the east coast of the United States. Um, what I do think also, and, and, and I'll just, you know, throw this in, um, 
this is this is stuff that uh, parts of the world have been dealing with for a while now, um, mm. and and it's it, it's good that the that the, the the American population and population in Europe when it was wildfires here and uh, and heat waves here in in Europe uh, are really starting to perk up and pay attention. Um, it would have been good to pay attention earlier because there are parts of the world that have been feeling the brunt of this for a while now. I'm thinking of Africa, parts of Asia, um, and but now it's now it's hitting here. Attention. And we'll now see it's how hitting, it's hitting we'll, home, and then we'll see. We'll see how reason. this summer this summer plays out. We've had record drought this spring uh, in places like uh, Spain, uh, southern France. Uh, there, we'll see how it plays out also uh, throughout the Mediterranean regions and even further parts north. Uh, in Norway, I know they've been feeling some of that smog coming over from Canada. I want to thank you, Elena Volochin. I want to thank as well uh, Andreas Evagora, Vivian Walt, Judah Grunstein for being with us from Newcastle. And thank you for being with us here in The World This Week. A recruitment ground for ISIS in the heart of the Caribbean. Over the last few years, more than 130 people have signed up to the Jihad in Trinidad and Tobago. They went for this utopian idea. There was this establishment of an Islamic state. Involving their families. I asked my husband to come home and he was against, and the guy told me that I could get my neck cut off, they could kill me for that. And with no hope of ever returning. We have a, a child that is the youngest, is three years old, that was born in the camp over there. The only life that child knows is growing up in a tent. Reporters on France 24 and France24.com.